Okay, hello, welcome to episode 102 of Herpetological Highlights with me, Tom Major, and my co-host, Ben Marshall. And today, uh, we're going to be talking... We've got a bit of a mixed bag, actually. We've got a paper about slow worms, and we've got a paper about snake fungal disease. So it's kind of a mixture of exciting and fun, slow worms having a battle and just being generally hilarious little legless lizards, um, wannabe snakes. And then, uh, yeah, a bit about snake fungal disease, which... Um, you know, a little bit of a more sort of um, moribund. Is that a word? That, that word means something close to what I'm trying to say. Um, I've never heard of that word before. <laughs> I've never, I've never, I'm not even going to be able to pretend that I've heard that word. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, I was... it's okay. It's it, yeah. Uh, of a person at the point, <laughs> it means at the point of death or of a thing in terminal decline, lacking vitality or vigor. So yeah, it's my, it's could be oh, described. You could describe a snake with snake fungal disease as moribund. But yeah, so, but before we do that, we got a frog call to listen to because why not? Just something a little bit different. There's a frog call here. Don't know how we're going to do this. Do you want to, I mean, there's not really any point in you trying to guess what animal this call is coming from, but you you can give it a go. Maybe say what you think it might look like. Um, So let's hear the call. Okay, so that was the cool. I mean, do you care to have any idea of what frog that um, was? I think it was quite a little frog. I think uh, it's going to be living in uh, high like density uh, forest or maybe near running water because it's quite high pitched. And I'm thinking that's needed to like penetrate leaves or through the ambient noise of running water. So I think that it's also South American. I think it's yet going to be little and it's going to be the uh, Amazonian striped stream frog. All right. So you're pretty close. It's actually from the Americas. It's from North America, though. It was only described in 2008 and it's called Sudacris fuquetii. Fuquetii. Ah, well, that would have been my second guess. Yeah. Fuquetii. And uh, yeah, they call it the Cajun chorus frog. And you're right, it's small, it's tiny, it's three centimetres long. Mm, sounded little. And I was three centimetres snouts event length. And yeah, really small, diurnal frog. Um, that call is quite unusual, isn't it? it apparently, um, what herpetologists will do if they want to mimic that call is they'll run their thumb along a comb. So it's like, blip, 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 blip. Oh, yeah, I totally hear that. Really fast. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, frogs, yeah. frogs will respond to that, which is kind of cool. Stresses them out. They all start freaking out because they think it's a massive frog. <laughs> yeah, literally. Well, yeah, it's all competition, isn't it, with the frog calls? But yeah, that is the call of a, a male. They don't generally fight. Um, interactions between males are just calling. They don't really. They're not aggressors. They're chillers. So that's do they, quite. Do nice. they live near running water? Yeah, they must do. I mean, um, they lay their yeah their their tadpoles live in water. So yeah, they definitely do live near. Near water. But not running water, necessarily. Um, breeding and courtship usually occur in shallow temporary pools and flooded fields nah. where there is emergent vegetation. Nah, Males that's... sit concealed within the grasses to produce their advertisement calls and the tadpoles come along and they eat bits of grass. And it looks kind of like, um, it's a bit stripy. It's like small brown frog with a very pointy nose. Some of them are striped, some of them have got a few spots. Hey, I brought up stripes. You did bring up stripes. Stripes. That's, yeah. I, I may have got the habitat hideously wrong, but stripes was there. 
Yeah. But anyway, that was a frog. Pretty nice little call. So that was Sudacris Fuquetii, the Cajun chorus frog. Excellent. Let's get into our first paper, shall we? It's about slow worms. And this is a paper chosen by Emily Vaughan Williams, one of our Patreons. So thank you very much, Emily. And the paper is Capula, Annabaldi, Philippi and Luiselli. And we're going way back to 1998. Uh, sexual combats, matings and reproductive phenology in an alpine population of the slow worm Anguis fragilis, published in Herpetological Natural History. Yeah, we had to go a little bit further back for this to find something that was good to talk about yeah. for slow worms that wasn't like a heavy, heavy like phylogenetic speciation paper across various different areas. <laughs> yeah, I always was... find with the phylogenetic stuff, like there are loads of really interesting sort of um, stories that come out of them, but quite a lot of the time it's better told pictorially than verbally, I find. Because if you look Definitely. at a picture and you think, Definitely. oh yeah, this is how the animals spread, you need a visual image of the like barriers and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So yeah, when it's just the case of like, yeah, you know, your typical, these populations have had like expansions and retractions in the past it's, it's not always interesting to talk about so yeah we decided to find this old school paper about combat because we like combat mating you know the universal truth of all life on earth uh so we've got no, a bit of reproduction in there no, yeah, you, it's not all of it it's the whole point of it isn't it is it consume universal though. consume reproduce die i suppose it is even viruses that's still reproduction isn't it yeah I mean, it's not universal if you're a comet, but you're also not conscious in any way. <laughs> yeah, I take it all back. <laughs> yeah, thank <laughs> So, uh, yeah, this, 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 this paper, we're going to Italy, a mountain territory of northeastern Italy, um, in the Carnic Alps, Sella Nevea, uh, in the Tarvisio Forest. And they were looking at the mating of slow worms, which occurs between April and May. So this is the time of year when slow worms are emerging from their winter hibernations where they've been probably just sitting underneath a bunch of leaves or hiding in a hole or underneath a rock and it's getting warm and as it warms up they start thinking about mating and um according to this paper they do love they, to mate do they do they group hibernate well i would imagine so i don't know for definite though okay i can imagine they do because they're not exactly shy about cuddling up together underneath stuff are they yeah i think there's a I think there was a mention in the paper about like uh, finding like aggregations of them, and yeah, mm, mm, mm. I'm just wondering if somewhere like the Alps, that's more likely to happen. Like, I don't know if there's a a lower density of like suitable warm hibernacular sort of locations mm. in a harsher environment than say somewhere in like central continental europe in more lowland areas mm. but maybe it's less critical yeah quite possibly i mean um yeah thinking about our other sort of temperate reptiles they i mean many many temperate reptiles have so-called dens don't they where they go and right go, go to a place so yeah i could see that uh, in the alps it would it, it seems very likely that they would um and i mean perhaps there's some also like defensive strategy there if they are uncovered it's better to be 15 slow slow worms than one yeah, I mean, the chances of you getting eaten is 1 in 15 then. <laughs> yeah, unless you got, yeah. Instead of having to be fast enough to get away, you've just got to be faster than the slowest of the slow worms. Unless you're like, as a badger, busting open the hibernaculum and eating all the slow worms like a bunch of spaghetti. <sighs> well, then you're just doomed. Yeah. Then you're doomed. <laughs> yeah, so they're talking about combat in this paper. And I have to say, 
in all my years of picking up slow worms, I never knew that they had male to male combat. Did you? Uh, no. No. Um, How is this just not mentioned? This is the kind of thing which is published in 1998 and then no one ever mentions it to you again. Maybe because it, it's not easy to observe. Maybe it's not actually that widespread. Because mm. we'll get to it later in the paper that there's a little bit of evidence that sort of contradicts uh, it being... Well, not contradicts, but sort of suggests that maybe it isn't super widespread. Um... But yeah, no, you're right. I, I, it's, it's not something you think of slowworms doing, to be, to be honest. But also, I don't think I've really ever seen more than a couple of slowworms at a time. Mate, I've seen an insane amount of slowworms at a time. Yeah, we got some refugia out on this sunny southern-facing slope. Never caught any snakes there, which is kind of good because um, it's thought to be outside the range of the introduced Escalapian snake in Wales, but. There's one refugia particularly on a hill and I've turned it over before and there's just been like 15 or 20 whopping slow worms under there. And initially we were going to try and sort of catch them and take pictures of each one and sort of try and get a data set together for mark recapture because you can identify them by the little chinny chin chins. But trying to catch, oh, yeah, yeah. Trying to catch any amount of slow worms beyond like two or three when there's that many under there, it just becomes a squirming <laughs> mess. And I'm always so scared because I don't want to... That Not only are they like big chunky things... Like, you know, I'm not that I'm intimidated by them. I'm not saying that. But like when you grab them, I'm always fearful their tail's going to come off. So it's like not only have you got to sort of try and grab up 15 slow worms that are already in sort of like dense matted vegetation. You're also on a slope and you just don't have enough hands. And then by the time you caught two or three, a good seven or eight have just disappeared. And you think, what's the point of even trying to do this? So I gave up. <laughs> well, what you do, you, you put a uh, a net below your cover object, right? So ah. they're above the net, but below the cover object. Take the cover object up, scoop up the net, and all just there in a sack. Yeah, sort of like crabbing. You know, like the modern day I... crab lines. You put the bait in a bag, and then you lower it down on top of a net. And then the, the crabs go to the bait, and then you lift it, the whole contraption up, and the, the crab's floor is suddenly a net, and then you've, you've caught them that way. There you go. Yeah. But instead of crabs, you've got slowworms. It's a good idea. I think implementation-wise... I mean, I... Could end up. Oh, it's probably nightmarish. <laughs> yeah, maybe though. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, the thing is, I think also part of the reason refugia work well, like these these roofing felt pieces that you put on the floor that get hot in the sun and reptiles come, is that they can kind of thermoregulate beneath them. So I feel like you'd have to have the netting mm-hmm. far enough down that they could still have those like slow worm layers underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you'd need net soil and sort of detritus and stuff, their usual substrate, and then the. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting it's a, <laughs> it's the greatest idea, but I'm just thinking. But I totally get your point of having this this um, tension between needing, to, well, wanting to capture a whole bunch of slowworms, but the hesitation brought on by not wanting to do them any harm, and speed being the issue here, because the faster you go, the more mistakes you're going to make, and the more tails are going to be left behind, and that's kind of not what you want. Tension, hesitation, and speed are the three words which most succinctly right. define reptile serving, I think. The triangle of failure. Yeah. Well, the, the, the tension, but the sort of tension, the anticipation of seeing a, a small legless lizard, and then the hesitation <laughs> when you see one, and then... The shock what, and awe. Yeah. What was, <laughs> what was the last one? <laughs> I can't even remember. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Chatting absolute rubbish. Anyway, so this paper, going back to the paper, one of the one of the things they talk about here is um, 
the male-to-male combat and what actually happens when they fight. And apparently, when two male slowworms decide to have a throwdown, they bite each other vigorously for, it says here, and for prolonged times, 10 to 30 minutes or even longer. Yeah. That's gross. 30 minutes of constant biting. And yet, if you pick up a slowworm, they would never, ever bite a human, which is very strange to me. I've, I've never seen a slowworm bite anything. I don't think they do it. I just don't think it's in their repertoire of defensive behaviours. They're more they just about... Op- open their mouths and just move over their prey items. They don't even bite bite the stuff they eat. They just bite each other. Um, So, yeah, um, that's what happens. They they have intense fighting. And then when it becomes to the actual mating, the the males will also be biting the females, um, usually near the head, the head and neck, which is like pretty typical sort of like legless animal mating strategy because they haven't really got anything else to grip on with. But yeah, so um, not only the males fighting a lot, but you can really decide... You can really tell who's going to win the fight, can't you, before the fight even starts For most, in most cases. In fact, in every case that they observed, and they actually saw 21 fights, and in every single case, the larger slow worm won. Yeah, see, okay, so this brings us round to this sort of, not contradiction, but, um, I don't know, incongruence, whatever you want to call it, where you have uh, female bias sexual dimorphism in this population of slow worms, right? Yeah. They're, I think their females were 17 centimetres, something like that. Sounds about and right. And the males are between like 13 to 15, 16-ish. With the ones that are 15, 16-ish routinely beating the sort of 13, 14 ones, right? Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. So it's usually the case if you have male combat, which also favours larger individuals that you get male bias sexual dimorphism. You see yeah. this in things like King Cobra, uh, desperately trying to think of other examples. Escalapian um, snake. Elephants, you know. Escalapian snake, yeah. the greatest es- snake of es- all. Oh yeah, the Escalapian snake, of course. What was the first one you said? King Cobra, I've not heard of that. Yeah, King Cobra, elephant, <laughs> Escalapian snake. <laughs> The triangle of male-male combat examples oh, yeah. in in the natural <laughs> world. Um, but regardless, loads of examples. Seems like a pretty decent... I, oh, I hate it. Not rule, not law, anything like that. But seems perfectly logical and backed up. But here we have an example where it seems like, yep, larger slowworms have a near-guaranteed chance of victory... But we don't have that male bias in the dimorphism, which, I don't know, to me raises loads of questions, because you've either got something else selecting for smaller males, you've got a bigger selective pressure for even larger females, which, you know, that's that's pretty reasonable, that the idea of, like, female bias, uh, sexual dimorphism is... I sort of boosted uh, capacity to carry eggs and provision for eggs or live birth, right? Yeah. But you've got this this tension because in loads of other examples, that doesn't the, the the female bias doesn't actually play out when you've got this male male combat, which has such a supposedly such a deciding factor for uh, whose genes are getting passed on. Hmm. And I kind of feel in the paper they miss out 
they sort of make this make this statement that those individuals or assume that those individuals winning the combat are more likely to reproduce and that the combat's directly tied to that um and they even you know they they compare uh when the combat's occurring to when the mating's occurring and the combat's always occurring beforehand basically or yeah. heavily beforehand so it does look like it's a prerequisite to the reproductive activity afterwards but in my books there's there's something else going on because <laughs> i feel like you'd see that a a heightened male uh size sexual dimorphism and I don't know. I was I was sort of thinking back to that Anolis paper we read like literally years ago with the the smaller sneaky males. Yeah, there's got to um, be some sneaky avoiding fights because they they bring up the whole like territoriality and sort of saying oh they're not territorial and this is more a hierarchical setup with the males being the, the larger males being more likely to reproduce and stuff like that and they're all bringing up these things which are self reinforcing that the combat is beneficial and feeds into it but i'm i would expect to see more like emergent properties of that in the population in terms of the sizes of individuals help and and things along those lines because i don't know i don't know that was that was my sort of take is there's got to be more going on here than just combat Big males winning combat. Big males more likely to reproduce. Da 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 da. Like it, it's there's something else going on that's that's counteracting that that success rate, and it could be the could be the sneaky male thing, or could, something else. Yeah, it could well be that there's just enough sneaky small males that are mating and keeping the population size of males down. Um. Right. Which seems quite likely, actually. And there's just a sort of class of males that are just not really about combat. <laughs> they just avoid it, <laughs> lie low. Yeah. And then, you know, opportunistically mate when there's no other males around. Yeah, that probably that, that seems like quite likely. But then also, like you mentioned, or, perhaps it is just the case that bigger females are just that much better at reproducing, that the, the yeah. selection pressure is just that much stronger and that. Yeah, maybe, you know, then other stuff comes into it. Like they are quite noticeably different in size, males and females. So maybe the females mm-hmm. are able to tackle larger prey than the males. You know, I don't know what the oh, difference so in complete, head sizes yeah. and things are. So, yeah, it could yeah. be. Yeah, it could be also that it stops them from competing with the females if they don't. If they get too big, they're in competition with the females and then that reduces their survival. Right. Um, so yeah, it's or, really or, interesting case, but yeah, I bet you there's some sneaky cuttlefish. I think the thing to do would be to have a sort of common garden experiment where you looked at which mm-hmm. males were winning the bouts and then looked at the um, genetics of the offspring to see if those males were most heavily reflected. Precisely. Yeah, I think really to get to to answer it completely too is you need to address the female mate choice side of things as well. Yeah, just because male larger male wins battle. And even, you know, successfully copulates with whichever female doesn't necessarily mean that the offspring will be linked to that larger male. Mm, yeah. Like there's so there's so many other little things in play, especially with reptiles, of selecting selecting mates and which you know, which bits of genetics actually gets pushed onto the next generation. Mm. Which could be watering down the effects of successful large male combat successes. Mm. Or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, either way, you know, really interesting, cool paper from back in the 90s. Um, 
And uh, yeah, like the bigger males are winning. There is actually a spelling mistake in their table. It says that snout vent, to length, snout vent length of these individuals is in centimeters when it's um, actually in millimeters because a, a slow worm that was cl- like over one and a half meters long would just be completely and utterly <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Wow. I wouldn't want to pick it up. That's a pretty big slow worm. It'd be so robust. Um, yeah. Like a, like a drain pipe. Yeah, it would be. It'd be weird. But yeah, I, I love slow worms. I think they're really charismatic, fun little legless lizards. It's always a pleasure. I saw the first one of the year a couple of weeks, uh, last week, actually. Um, Excellent. So yeah, really nice. Um, yeah, cute. Uh, let's 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 talk about paper two, shall we? Uh, paper two, we got a paper about snake fungal disease here. So this is... Host microbiome responses to the snake fungal disease pathogen, which is Ophidiomyces ophidiocola, are driven by changes in microbial richness. And this was published in Scientific Reports 2022. So we're coming, we're crash landing back in the present day. And this paper is actually, the lead author of this paper is a listener of ours called Alex Roma. So um, yeah, congratulations on the paper, Alex. Awesome, really cool. Um, yeah, sent us a really nice email about how he's, become a herpetologist and uh yes it's rad that you got a paper out so we're going to talk about it um and we i mean just as a sort of um hmm, warning we don't know what we're talking about when it comes to uh bacteria or <laughs> pathogens and um yeah microbiomes wow what a field well, before of... you before you delve into the the tiny hellscape that is microbiomes um do you want to do the rest of the authors? Uh, yes, very well said. So, Roma, Grinath, Mo, and Walker, 2022. And yeah, so snake fungal disease. It's uh, it's a pathogen. Obviously, right now, people are freaking out about pathogens because of chytridiomycosis, the one that's got, the f- got all the frogs. And there's also the white spot disease in bats, which is f- freaking yeah, everyone out. Um, West Nile in birds. Ah, uh, yeah. So there's lots of different... There's, I mean, there's that's lots. A vi- that's a virus, though. We're talking, we're talking bacterial yeah. things try and, here, aren't we? Try and stay on topic, Ben, if you don't mind. And uh, mm. <laughs> and uh, focus. Yeah, we're doing snake fungal disease. So this is the disease which occurs in wild snake populations of lots of different species. Um, it's found across a large geographic area in the United States, and it's also been detected in numerous other countries. And what this pathogen does is. It's a fungus and it lives on the skin of infected reptiles. And um, after a while, you know, the, the symptoms are like sort of lesions and yellowy, browny chunks on the skin. And it, it looks quite bad. And after a That's while, wrong. if you're a snake who's got this disease, it overcomes you and you die. Generally, a lot of times snakes are seen with it sort of coming out of hibernation. And yeah, we've had we've seen some snakes here, actually, with um, a little bit of some kind of look, fungus looking thing. But we've had it tested and um at least in one individual and it, it came back negative for snake fungal disease which is good there obviously there's a bunch of fungal pathogens that can live on snakes so it's probably just something different but yeah if you imagine we're talking about microbiomes so a microbiome is literally just that it's a tiny tiny community of little tiny organisms living on something and in this case we're talking about the skin of a snake so if you imagine a snake just imagine a snake 
okay. de- decent. I'm seeing it. I'm imagining an Escalapian snake. Are you? Yeah, wicked. And then mm-hmm. so now you're zooming in on the snake's skin, right? Super close up. Like super close yep. up. Closer than you've ever looked, ever. And what you'll see is it's actually... My eye is almost touching the snake. Yeah. <laughs> what you'll see is it's actually a very um, rich landscape it's it's not smooth it's the scales themselves are rough there's the interstitial skin between the scales there's like little bits of scale breaking off it's it's a it's a highly textured tiny landscape with its own ecological community so there's there's you know i would imagine i don't know the figures but many species of tiny organism (laughs) living on this tiny world and this is the microbiome of the snake's skin and you know even on our own skin there's tons of things living there. Um, some of them might be parasites. Some of them have got positive benefits. Some of them are, you know, living in mutualism with you. They might defend you from certain attacks from fungus, as an example. Um, but what the authors of this paper wanted to do, what Alex was doing, was they wanted to look and see if they inoculated a bunch of snakes. And what are the snakes they used? They were a type of water snake, weren't they? Uh, Nerodia something. Cypodon. Sip- so the common water go. snake, because this study is looking at microbiomes, if you were to take a captive reptile and perform this experiment on it, where they were looking at the effects of snake fungal disease, it might not be a very accurate representation because a wild snake is exposed to the dirt, the water, a ton of stuff. It's going to have a, it's likely going to have a much more natural microbiome community than a snake yeah. that come, comes from captivity. There's a marvelous uh, case study of this sort of thing happening. Oh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be remember where where I where I read it. It was something about they. This, I'm going off on a tangent again, but they had uh, lab rats from one lab and lab rats from another lab, and basically this person moved from lab A to like a new position in a different university that had a totally different lab setup, and all their stuff was basically they went from a smaller university to a bigger richer fancier university and the richer fancier university had way higher um capacity to keep things clean and uh, sort of sterile and the, the experiments that they've been conducting on uh rats beforehand in their previous institution failed to occur in their new one and basically that the the implication was that the rearing of these lab rats in different conditions and different sort of cleanlinesses uh, completely changed their microbiome and sort of setup. So when they applied whatever treatment, it didn't have the same effect as it did in a previous institution. And it was a nice little example of exactly the same people doing exactly the same experiment, obviously different rats, but th- the different contexts these rats were done in, even though they were both labs, changed changed the results to the point of you see an effect in one place you don't see an effect in another place wow that's crazy it's uh I mean, I, what what, I, what a crazily difficult and complicated hurdle to have to jump right you think you've got lab conditions but even your lab conditions are not adequately stable enough between institutions to, to mm. replicate a study and i i apologize now for not remembering where that example is written down Still a uh, yeah, great example. And so what they wanted to do here was they had 11 snakes, 18 of which they inoculated with snake fungal disease. So that just means they dosed them with it. They they gave them the starting culture and put it on their skin in the, in the hopes that it would grow, which it did. 
And they looked at a few different things. They first of all looked at how the pathogen load changed. So when they were swabbing snakes every week, do snakes which have been given snake fungal disease have more of the fungus on their skin as time goes on? which they did, which you'd expect from a, a kind of disease progression standpoint. But the other thing was... You'd, go on. Was it, wasn't it uh, universal? Like there were no individuals that um, sort of combated it, correct? Uh, yeah, correct. Right. So that, I mean, that's kind of notable, I feel, in some ways, isn't it? That if a snake has this dose of, of fungus in its environment, it's guaranteed for that fungus to propagate and get worse yeah 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 and then the other thing they were interested in doing was looking how at how being inoculated so being given the snake fungal disease how that changes the kind of community of microbes that are living on the snake itself um because you'd expect that generally speaking snakes or any animal its microbiome community will kind of reach a sort of equilibrium state where it's like sort of more or less the same. But if you introduce random things into it, there can be insane sort of changes. What you've what you're describing is an ecosystem, right? Yeah. Like you think of a forest, you think of a plains environment. It's relatively stable until a large sort of perturbation occurs and the community changes in some potentially unpredictable way. We had wonderful examples uh, just last episode of introduce toxic toad and, you know, the rippling effects. Here, we're just talking about exactly the same sort of process. Well, not exactly the same, but (laughs) as an analogy, the same sort of process, you introduce a new perturbation, a new variation, an event, a forest fire, a, a fungal pathogen, and it's going to impact how that community is arranged and, and which ones are present and which ones are not. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so what to that end, what they found was that over time, essentially snakes which had been given snake fungal disease, the groups and types of organisms that were growing on their skin became different over time. So there was less consistency between the microbiomes of the snakes which have been given snake fungal disease. Essentially, once you've inoculated a snake with snake fungal disease, the microbiome community starts to go a bit wild and it's way less predictable. All sorts is going on. And you end up with a situation where the snakes which haven't got snake fungal disease have all got quite similar microbiome communities. And the ones which have been given it are sort of veering wildly out in experimental directions with their microbiome communities, which is obviously... Probably not the situation a snake would prefer. Yeah, I mean, you've got this sort of... It's it's quite interesting because you've got this initial, like, increase in what's what's in that microbiome, like the number of species in that microbiome. And then they were saying it sort of shifted to maybe one, one of those species becomes mis- more dominant and the others start falling away. So it, it in in a way... It looks, yeah, I think what you said, like a destabilization, I suppose, is is a nice way of thinking about it, where things are sort of initially like hypercharged, but it skews off because the balance has been thrown off. Yeah. And it's pretty apparent, you know, comparing it to the the control snakes, where it have this much stabler, you know, there's obviously variation from day to day on what's in the microbiome, but it doesn't have this, (laughs) like, trend towards increased variability 
yeah. uh, that you saw in the, the snake fungus snakes. And then with the snake fungus snakes, eventually there comes a point where the microbial sort of the groups of microbes become less diverse and yeah essentially a few become become dominant over time where others become rarer so essentially when you get the disease you get a really increased variability in host microbiome uh but then after a while um it it, it sort of calms down a bit but that's just you know it's just the same as any kind of ecological system, really. Yeah, I mean, again, the, the invasive species is a great example. You put in new species into location, you've technically increased the diversity and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. But then it spirals out of control and potentially decreases and one becomes dominant. Potentially the invasive species becomes dominant or something. Yeah. I know that's a bit of a butchered analogy because this snake fungal disease is not like an invasive species, but I'm... It, it To me, that's an easier way of understanding it. I think it's a perfectly relevant way of understanding it as well. And I think, to be honest, yeah, this paper is obviously a topic which we're not used to covering. And reading through it, I think I think we've got the, the, the main point, which is well, the, the point they're trying to make is that, you know, these microbes that they're studying on the snake's skin, it's not like we know what they do. All we know is that when you introduce snake fungal disease, it it creates a kind of bizarre change to the path to the right. microbes that live on the snake and it's like this is worth attention this is what's happening and i think the next step would be to like start to look okay well what are these microbes which are being pushed out or pulled in by the, the presence of the snake fungal disease actually doing i mean they're all going to be having some kind of effect on the snake or at least it's yep. likely that many of them will so yeah i think this paper is kind of just like a a fleshing out of a key sort of component of the impact of snake fungal disease because yeah you can look at a snake and say oh look at these lesions look at that you know look at that horrible fungus that's on the snake and it's like it's obviously something's growing on it but um to have a kind of appreciation of how that changes the existing microbes is you know potentially quite valuable yeah absolutely yeah and it's you know it's potentially stuff that's occurring to the snake prior to things like lesions which are you know heavy duty physical changes yeah and what was it i think of the snakes which had the snake fungal disease six of 11 died yeah some of the sham snakes died that weren't given snake fungal disease uh but that's probably because they're wild caught snakes adapting to a life in captivity and maybe they didn't like it that much right yeah just i mean congratulations to alex and all the other authors really cool great to see and yeah i hope we didn't completely butcher it We, we tried to make sense of it. So, yeah, uh, let's move on, shall we, to our species of the bye week? Let's do it, yeah. Okay, so our species of the bye week this bye week is... Oh, and they <laughs> put the title in the thing. Well, just, like, just bleep it out. I'll just bleep it out. Bleep. A new short-horned lizard from southern Thailand... I don't know why I said it like a robot. And it's published in the Herpetological <laughs> Journal um, in this year, 2022, brand new. And its, pub, its um, authors are Trivalarat, Simontha, Kunya and Chiankel. And yeah, we're describing a new species of horned lizard. So these things are crazy. I mean, it's in the genus Acanthosaura. We're in southern Thailand. Um, prior to this, this species was called or is thought of as Ancathosaura crucigera. Um, but this is a splitting from that species. 
Um, it's got some different features physically, but it's also mitochondrial DNA different, which is key. Um, and yeah, we're in a nice tropical rainforest in Thailand. Uh, what does this lizard look like? It's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that you sort of immediately notice with this guy is this white uh, mustache. Mustache, upper lip, I suppose. A very dark, uh, sort of green-black head and uh, orange eye ring. I think that's the eye ring as opposed to the eye being orange. Could be the eye being orange. Um, gorgeous stripy tail, like uh, like a young iguana, and a checkerboard esque pattern. Like I feel like we were describing a checkerboard esque pattern with the alligator lizard recently, and yeah. this is not dissimilar from that sort of uh, dark greenish with black uh, squares that we were talking about the other week. Yeah, the funny little horns over the eyes. Makes, it reminds me of Ceratosaurus. You know that dinosaur that's got the funny... Actually, that's only got a nose horn, I think. Maybe No, maybe it has got horns over the eyes. Maybe it was the Disney film that put horns on it, and I was just like, it looks like that. But either way, <laughs> it's a cool lizard. And yeah, it's basically the southernmost populations of this um, Acanthosaurus crucigera have now become Athen- Acanthosaurus meridiona. Uh, what's the etymology on this guy? Uh, it means southern, basically. Oh, um, connected to the southern distribution uh, in Thailand. And, which uh, kind of works kind of perfectly. And they've given uh, it quite a catchy Thai name as well. King Kak Hao Nam Sun Thai. Which just means which pre- southern shorthorn lizard, I believe. Presumably, right? Yeah. We do have a little bit of natural history, which is nice. Yeah. Living in these beautiful evergreen rainforests, chilling out near streams and waterfalls, enjoying sitting on rocks and logs. Diurnal. Uh, sort of, what would you call that? Like understory, you know, from half a metre to a couple of metres up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, presumably this uh, is a predatory lizard eating insects and stuff. Does it explicitly say that? Uh, it doesn't, but it does say if you uh, approach them or with provocation, they will either climb upwards or drop to the ground and hide under rocks and hollow logs. Oh, yeah, eating earthworms. Some of them eat worms. <laughs> there you go. Wow, cool. <laughs> I always thought, I always am surprised that um, more reptiles don't eat worms. They just seem like tubes of pure meat. I've said that about other animals, but. Yeah, it's just nature's fruits. What's the downside? Yeah. Sweet. Um, They probably host some pretty nasty parasites. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 Living down there in the dirt. I still stand by the fact that this lizard looks a bit like Ceratosaurus. I wish I had a point of reference for for this. So it's like How a big spell... predatory sauropod. Sauropods are the Sauratosaurus. runny roundy ones. Sauropods are the bird leg ones, right? What's the other one? Uh, the other one are ornithischians, right? And they're called okay. the bird-hipped dinosaurs, even though they 
Oh yeah, sauropods. <laughs> sauropods, sauropods, are, right? <laughs> sauropods are the opposite. Ornithischian. Why am I even talking about this? I because you wanted to connect it to this this dinosaur. Dinosaur yeah. with horns, a Ceratosaurus. Yeah. No, 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 no. Just Ceratosaurus. Yep. I'm looking it up now. Um, depictions of this dinosaur vary wildly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to uh, not comment. He doesn't think it looks like Ceratosaurus, and that's fine. So uh, let's. What else we got? We got some any other business? I got some any other business. Um, first of all, just wanted to say big thank you to one of our new patrons, Pip Low. So thanks very much, Pip. And I think that's it, actually. I don't think I've got anything else to mention. Have you got you any? sure? <laughs> yeah, have you got any? I no, I've, I've got nothing, mate. <laughs> All right, then. Well, um, I don't see any harm in leaving it there. Excellent. Slow worms, snake fungal disease, and an awesome new lizard with little spikes over its eyes. Yes, yes. Very nice. And... Um, just a reminder, uh, if you want to um, become a patron of ours, you can, patreon.com slash herphighlights. We're on all social media if you want to get in touch with us, or you can just email us at herphighlights at gmail.com. And yeah, we sell cool t-shirts with reptiles on at redbubble.com slash herphighlights. So yeah, have a look if you want something with a lizard or a snake or a... Have we got any frog? Yeah, we've got a toad. We've got a toad. Have a little look. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>